people don't want hubris. They don't want lies. They don't want any of this stuff. They want results. And what is going to happen is two major pieces of legislation will be passed in the next week or two, maybe even this week. And uh, and we'll see significant, and maybe actually by the time people hear this, we'll see significant investments in real infrastructure, in like roads and bridge infrastructure, and then in human infrastructure, which is what people are really going to be voting on when it comes to 22. Welcome to Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor, and this show is here to support your interests in center-right politics, policy, and breaking news. Listen in and discover how to awaken your inner ideal candidate and, if you're ready, how you can jump in and change the world as a runner or a supporter. Welcome to Political Contessa. If you or a friend have ever considered running or you know a woman who should, I've got something just for you. My quick guide called Secrets from the Campaign Trail. It will show you five signs to tell you you're ready to enter the political arena. To get these tips and learn about all new podcast episodes and ways to get involved, head over to politicalcontessa.com. On this episode of Political Contessa, I'm going to have a little bit of an election recap for the Virginia and governor's races that just happened in November of 2021, and also a little bit of political prognostication on what is going to happen in Congress and in the 2022 elections based on what we saw just happen. So I have with me my good friend, consider him my alter ego, my political adversary, and I call myself his Republican wifey, but Steve Kerrigan is with me. Steve and I have known each other for a while. We do happen to do a lot of Massachusetts, Boston, TV, and radio together. And we actually like each other, despite the fact he's a Democrat. I think he's super cool. So Steve was the CEO of the Democratic National Convention. He ran for lieutenant governor in 2014. And he is currently the president and CEO of the Edward M. Kennedy Health Center in Massachusetts, which runs about 12 or 13 different sites. Steve is one of the my go-tos for democratic politics. I don't agree with him on policy or what he believes in most of the time. However, we do agree on a lot of things and and a lot of it is just the trajectory of the country and making sure that we're on a good path. So, I am so happy that he's here with me to discuss the 2021 election cycle and for the 2022 cycle, and hopefully he'll come back again. So please listen in for a really interesting conversation with my buddy, Steve Kerrigan. I'm so excited for this episode of Political Contessa to have another really good friend of mine. And when I say that, hold on and just bear with me for a second, because this is kind of like my alter ego, my political 
alter ego, the, the person who is me on the left. And I love having discussions with him because we totally disagree on all policy and politics and who should be in office. However, we agree on one thing, that there should be democracy and that people should go out and vote and that having good candidates, having a good resonating message and being good people actually help in elections. And so forget about where we come from. So today I have with me my friend, Steve Kerrigan. So Steve is the president and CEO of the Edward M. Kennedy Health Center. However, he has also run the Democratic National Conventions and my most favorite, because I would have loved to forget who is running me was, I would have loved to have seen him in office. <laughs> but Steve ran for Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts. <laughs> and we're going to ignore that he has a D next to his name and that his running mate was horrible. But he's not going to speak to that. And we're not talking about that today. <laughs> I just I needed give to- it a lifeline. Not <laughs> I, needed, I needed to get him going a little bit. So we want to discuss today, Steve, right? Is what happened in the November surprise election in Virginia. We can also talk about New Jersey because I think that that's super important as well. Sure. And so I'm going to just kick this off since it's my show. I get to start this. But host privilege. Host privilege. (laughs) Your vice president of the United States said just a couple of weeks ago that Virginia was a bellwether for what would happen in 22 and 24. So as someone who spends a lot of time in Washington, D.C., knows Joe Biden well, Pete Buttigieg, didn't he work for you at some point as an intern or something? He was my intern. (laughs) Not That doesn't say how old you are at all, because you're very No, I'm free to admit that. But when the second highest ranking Democrat, first highest ranking female Democrat, goes out on the campaign trail and makes a comment like that and then gets whooped by a Republican. So can you can you guys save yourself in 2022 <laughs> or do you think history is going to be on point and the Republicans will have a nice little sweep? Oh, it's interesting. First of all, thank you for having me. And I think we both know. And thank you, frankly, for this podcast and the ability to really take the angst and anxiety out of political conversations and policy conversations and make it just about people wanting to move our commonwealth and our country forward. So I appreciate the opportunity and always love shooting that board we can't talk about on podcasts with you. Politics, you know, the first of all, you have an interesting definition of what did you call it? A whopping? Because the definition of a whoop. It was a. It was definitely. I mean, it was a defeat. There's no way around it. We lost that race significantly. Well, uh, Governor McAuliffe did. I don't. I don't think it was as much of a whooping as as you suggest. I mean, Terry got more votes than any other candidate for Democrat candidate for governor in Virginia history, except for uh, Ralph Northam. And I, and frankly, the governor elect got more votes than any Republican by a significant amount. So. The good story there was a lot of people got unvoted. The bad story for our side was not not enough of them voted for Terry McAuliffe. As to the vice president's comment, we all know people say an awful lot of things to drive voter turnout, to get people energized, to get people excited to go out. They make them feel like it is the most important election. I heard that phrase, the most important election in our lifetime. I don't blame her for using everything in the book that was a fact. 
and you know, seemingly a true statement to get people to get out of the vote. I, I, you know, on the other side, by the way, your party, you, the Republican candidate in his campaign, used every thing in the book that wasn't true to try to drive out and divide uh, voters. I look, I can't blame the guy for having a tactic that worked, but I can blame for those in our party who tried to be the smartest kid in the class rather than the one who won the election. He threw out a bunch of lies. They chased the bait, and it is what it is. But I don't, I don't. I admire the vice president greatly, but I don't agree with her that it's at all whether they're of any kind for uh, next year's elections at all because of what's going on in Washington right now. People don't want hubris. They don't want lies. They don't want any of this stuff. They want results. And what is going to happen is two major pieces of legislation will be passed in the next week or two, maybe even this week. And, uh, and we'll see significant, and maybe actually by the time people hear this, we'll see significant investments in real infrastructure, in like roads and bridge infrastructure, and then in human infrastructure, which is what people are really going to be voting on when it comes to 22 and 24. Okay. So I'm going to call you on a couple of things. Okay. Because <laughs> you know I'm going to do that. called you out on your definition of who. I, so I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was it? 55, 45? I mean, that's a pretty decent margin. Isn't that, like, isn't that like Charlie? Chicken, did Charlie chicken beat chicken Martha notes. by that much? Nine votes a precinct. Thank you very much. Nine <laughs> votes a precinct. Uh, <laughs> I know it all too well. Nine votes of breathing. Sorry, uh, sorry. I know. But all you need is one. So. Right. That's, that's exactly it. <laughs> as, as political operatives, what we know is actually all you need to do is Just win by one, one and you. you actually win. It's not much different than sports. No. So, um, actually, the result, excuse me, the result was 50.7% to 48.6%. Okay. Right. Now, this is according to the New York Times, so you probably don't believe that. But Oops. this is. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the... fake, fake news can. Right. <laughs> so... I'll see if Fox has the real numbers. They probably are only covering that he won. No, yeah. no. Fox has good numbers. They're, they're <laughs> a little bit more, they're more accurate than the they're... New York Times. So. <laughs> so I. So. Look, I'm not going to get into the argument over CRT and schools and whatever. My, you know, I live in Massachusetts. My kids go to Massachusetts schools. It's a blue state. It is actually factual that there is stuff being taught in schools and parents don't have a say in it. And so, and so that is that is an actual factual thing in a blue state. I cannot speak well, to Virginia. So, so hold on a second. Parents have a say because they vote in school committees. They vote in elected officials who hire superintendents. I mean, they have a say. I mean, you, we have no one knew millions that before. of parents in America and you're going to have them all do curriculum. I, I'm not going to do what Terry did, which is take the bait and follow this path. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. No, 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 no. I am going to say, if people want to look at who invests in education, look at the Democratic Party. If you want to look at people who try to cut down teachers unions, cut down education funding and try to eliminate the Department of Education, look at the Republican Party. All right. Well, we believe in school choice, so we're not going to get into that. That's we, you and I, by the way, Steve and I can go yeah. on for hours and hours and hours and have all these conversations. So I'm going to try to keep us we'll straight and them. narrow track, so that right. way we don't keep you listening forever and we'll just have to have more conversations. So but I will say the, the thing that the thing that Yunkin hit on for, I think, suburbanites, especially who came out and voted was this idea of parents should have a say in what happens in their homes with their kids and with their kids' educations. I also do think, and you know, I think you agree with me, but maybe not, in that people really don't pay attention to what the role is of people that they vote for, right? So you vote for a school committee, you don't really know what that means. You vote for a city councilor, you think that they're in control of Planned Parenthood. You vote for, you know, president, you think that they're going to fix the potholes on the street, right? I mean, like, 
people are, our civics in this nation have gone far off course. They stop being taught and people really yeah. don't have a grasp. I mean, if you talk to the normal person on the street, it's what, seven out of 10 people don't know who their state representative is or their state assemblyman. And, and so that's a shame. So, so I think if you go back into what parents know and don't know, then it's easier to explain this, which is that Yunkin hit on this chord for parents. And it happened after COVID because I know as a mom, I, I at some point, and, and again, full disclosure, my children go to independent schools. They do not go to public schools. It's a very different situation. And I get that. And I understand that. And they are super, super fortunate. I am a product of public schools, but I, at one point sent a email to my daughter's headmaster. She was in second grade and it was May. And I said, I just want to let you know <laughs> as, as the headmaster, the principal, the teacher, the janitor, the lunch lady, and, and everything else, I'm done. I quit. I'm all finished. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not a teacher. I, I'm, I'm the mom. And oh, this is when the kids are at home. This so. is when the kids are at home, right? And I think for a lot of parents, now my kids, again, very fortunately, early 2020, you know, in September of 2020, went back to school. A lot of parents did not have that. Their kids yeah. resumed schooling. So they were homeworking. They were also watching their kids. They became much more invested in their children's education and what they were learning because of COVID. So, so I think the timing, right? It was like Scott Brown. It was the, the stars and the moon and the sun and the water all aligned at the right time with the right message. And it was, you know, swooping in. However, after Scott Brown won in 2010, as I'm sure you remember, it was a gigantic Republican wave with the Tea Party that came in that yeah. fall. So, so there is something to the messaging, right, of, of getting people excited and getting them to see something that they never saw before. In the case in yeah. 2010, it was the ACA. And yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. right. So, I mean, I think, I think no. it's, you know, in politics, we can, we can get someone excited by, Barack Obama, first African-American, young, very sure. energetic, or it could be the, which is the person, or it could be the pol some sort of policy or something that is actually affecting every day. And that's what Yunkin had. He had those kitchen table issues that parents well, so, are dealing with. So, I, so I'll, I'll agree with you on that last sentence that he did do uh, what he did and Terry should have done more of is talk about really down at the base level issues, kitchen table issues, pocketbook issues. I think his solutions are ridiculous, but he discussed them. I will say the difference between now and 2010, Scott Brown's entire message was no, was vote me and I'll be the one to stop everyone from getting healthcare, which um, he ended up not being able to do, which is good. This time it's this, this, CRT stuff. And look, I'm not going to yell at the refs for the fact that the Republicans lied about CRT and that it's actually not being taught in schools. It's a, it's a master's degree level class. It's ridiculous to say this, but I'm not going to lie about it because people believed it and that's fine. It's the new equivalent of the typical Republican playbook of the classic racial appeal politics. It's the uh, same as Nixon's law and order, which was basically suggesting we have to clamp down on cities, which of course happen to be places where people of color were. It's designed to divide the working class, like Reagan's welfare queens, all that stuff. I don't think when it comes to 22, 
that is going to get enough independent voters or enough Reagan Democrats to swing over to that side, as opposed to that wave of folks with the, uh, the Tea Party who did the whole, you know, hands off my money and all that jazz, which is they've gone the way of the dodo. Thank God. Of course, they've been replaced by the Freedom Caucus, which is even better for America if you're looking for America to tank pretty quick. But, but here's what different is. The ACA was a long game play and it's played off. It's paid off. 25 million Americans now have healthcare. They'll never get rid of it. The Republicans have tried dozens and dozens of times to go anywhere. The same thing is going to be the case with Build Back Better. Same thing is going to be the case with this infrastructure bill. When those pass, Democrats will be back talking to voters about the impact on their street, which, by the way, you said people elect the president think they're going to fix potholes. Good news is for the majority of Americans who voted for Joe Biden, he'll be fixing potholes with Build Back Better when <laughs> billions of dollars are poured back in streets and, and infrastructure in Massachusetts. By the way, there are... In Massachusetts, Bay Staters drive over bridges, I want to say it's like 100 million times in like a week. And most of our bridges are deficient, which is why when those results are out there, that's what Democrats are going to campaign. Yeah, and I don't think CRT is going, to, is going to carry it. Look, they won the Virginia governor's race. I'm not going to say fair and square, but they added it all up. I will say this. What's interesting? Oh, what? You're now no, starting I think, to I just think lying. No, no, I don't think, no, 2020? I think lying, no, I don't think lying is fair. Uh, but they won the election there. I mean, they votes counted and he won. I would say this. The interesting part is, had Terry McAuliffe won that election by even 10 points, every Republican would be saying he stole it. We're not saying that about Greg Youngkin. He, or whatever. Is it Greg? Glenn. Or Glenn. Glenn. Yeah. Youngkin. Um, because he won. There's nothing we can argue about that. He won the election. Well, I mean, I think. You but know, I don't they're... think it portends <laughs> a wave in 22. I so... actually think once we get back to talking about. I mean, by the way, the Democrats in Congress are very, very busy trying to legislate against the Republicans in Congress who were trying to do absolutely nothing. I mean, they filibustered in the United States Senate this week, or last week, sorry, a Voting Rights Act. Not are filibustering me right now. <laughs> sorry. So, <laughs> it's your show. You get to do this all the time. <laughs> so I know. It seems like this is what you and I do usually when we're interviewed. <laughs> Now we know how those guys feel. I know. Uh, so, you know, a few things wasn't again, he wasn't lying, right? Because the message from the Democratic Party recently has been a lot on race and and it has seemed very divisive and not very much like we are one nation under God. It is it is a black nation, a brown nation, a, you know, a female nation, a male nation, a they nation, a everyone is now in their own little silo, which I don't think is healthy for us. And so and maybe CRT is not is not the right phrase to use, right? Maybe it is that there is a lack of diversity of thought that is being taught from the youngest years on up. And history books are being tossed out for what teachers feel or teachers unions feel like should be. And really, like you can't this you can't disagree. Party, this was someone of the party who wanted to get rid of the 1619 project. I mean, we well, can't teach that slavery happened. No, no, we should teach that slavery happened, but we also have to teach it realistically. Look, my my family was not here in 1619, nor in 1719, nor in 1825. I think they got here in like 1920. So, I yeah. mean, you know, let's teach history how it is and let's teach let's teach it based on actual history and not on interpretation of history. And so I think that that's one of the 
the main issues that he was hitting on. And, and again, it wasn't just that. That just happened. The education thing happened to be the thing that was most exciting to people and to suburbanites. What was well, more exciting... Because it was a fear tactic. That's why it was exciting to people. It oh. served to divide people around racial lines and economic lines. Well, I, his, lieutenant, his lieutenant governor is a black woman from Jamaica who served in the U.S. military and is a gun-toting female. I mean, I, I think that, like it's hard to say that. And... But the attorney general no, is the not. first Latino who's who's elected. And so I think that who's a Republican. So both are Republicans and both were elected on their own without being right, on, on a own. ticket on, yeah. on, their, on own. their own. They weren't right. a part of his lying and fear mongering. No, but, but, but they but they are still but they are still Republicans who still were out there talking bread and butter issues. They were talking education. They were talking economy. They were talking jobs. And, and that was resonating. Right. And that was resonating. And so. If we want to go back to the infrastructure, the Build Back Better plan, I mean, two thirds of the country believes that we're headed in the wrong direction. So the Biden administration needs to figure out something quickly because this can pass. But if this passes without any Republican support, it is going to be a referendum on the Biden administration, because when you look at what happened in the Senate and you have bipartisan support for an infrastructure bill, like real actual brick and mortar roads and bridges infrastructure, which all of us enjoy, we use it. We go to work, we take our kids to school, we go food shopping, whatever it is. But when you start spending extra tax dollars and make $1.75 trillion seem like a bargain compared to the original $6 trillion compared to the $3.5 trillion and now down, at some point, people are taking notice of where those tax dollars are going and how they're going to affect us. And, and so one thing so that you funny. said, wait, 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 hold on. One thing that you said that I thought was really interesting was... If we point out to to my folks that, that the ACA, right, came in in 2010 and has not gone away yet, and those tax dollars have been spent on it. Now, I, I agree people should have quality health and you being in the health profession, right? I'm not going to yes. argue with you on this. People are entitled to quality health care. I absolutely agree with that. Just like I do believe in this Build Back Better plan, I would love it to be. I would love it to be termed as something else. I'm a believer in early education. I think that the problem in this country is that some kids don't go to school and don't learn how to read until they're in first or second grade, which is too far ahead mm-hmm. to be able to figure out their problems and their issues with reading and writing and any any IEPs that they need. And so I agree with that. Thing I don't like is one things being hidden and and kind of masked, which is what this infrastructure, fake infrastructure is. Two, I think it should be separated. Let's let's get road. Let's get something. Look, well, if we are, all want to work so. together, get the infrastructure done, the real infrastructure, and they work on separate. everything else. They are separate. There's the infrastructure bill that's passed the Senate. Once it passes the House, it'll go directly to the president. So that's one. The Build Back Better bill is separate. And I will say, despite what you said, that the vast majority of the country doesn't agree with it. Sixty-six percent of the nation agrees and supports the Build Back Better plan, including 61% of independents and 39% of Republicans. Well, your statistics come from something else than I've been seeing because I saw two thirds of the country is actually believes that the country is going in the wrong direction. Well, that's a different, that's, that's, Jen, that's a different uh, thing. This right. is, we're talking about Build Back Better. 66% support Build Back Better and because they, they don't, understand. But, but it's about two thirds that actually of that group do not believe it's going to make their lives any better than they are. So they don't mm-hmm. understand it also. So I, I so think it's, it's also the pitch. But it's interesting. Sure, look, maybe pitches can always be better. But let me tell you something. It's interesting that when the Republicans want to 
do a trillion dollar tax cut, which they did under Trump, if not more than. They chose to cut taxes for the top 1% of Americans and corporations. When we choose to invest a, billion, a trillion dollars in early childhood education, in roads and bridges, in, by the way, paid family leave so that folks can take care of sick family members, and in, in doing all these incredible programs, oh, by the way, in clean energy, which is going to create you know, tens of thousands of jobs here in Massachusetts, all these things we're going to invest in with the same amount of money. The Republicans just think it's just a horrible because there's all the details are just foggy, yet they have no problem ramming through a trillion dollar tax cut under Trump and then the trillion dollar tax cut or the hundreds of billions of dollars under George W. Bush. It's just interesting to me that when we have real programs and real projects that we want to invest real money in to help real people and real families and communities, uh, that's terrible because we're investing way too much money. But when we want to give back a trillion dollars to the richest people in America and the richest corporations in America, who, by the way, pay no taxes, that's the greatest demonstration of patriotism ever since like the de- signing of the Declaration. It's just a, it's, a, it's mind boggling to me. I've grown to accept it as sort of endemic and, and part of the way it is. But it's mind boggling how the same amount can be invested in two different ways. Super rich people in, in cutting their taxes or investing in everyday Americans. Hence why you're a Democrat and I'm a Republican. Listen, I will I will point out that I am a fiscal conservative, which means yeah. that I am actually really, really upset at the past couple of administrations for their lax oversight of spending. I think it's disgusting. And the reason we're in the situation we're in today is because of many administrations, right, both Republican and Democrat, who have not paid attention to the spending. It's gotten out of control. And now my grandkids are going to be paying for what my mother, my mother used. Right. And so, right. And so we see inflation. We see people aren't back at work. We see containers waiting around. Like, I mean, there are issues that we, instead of fighting about all of this, need to solve. And we just need to be able to say people need roads and bridges. They need to get those crates out, those containers out. We need Mm -hmm. to switch them out. We need to fix it. So that way, when I go to Target to go get juice boxes for my nine-year-old's Halloween party, that there are actually juice boxes on the shelves at Target instead of you not being able to find anything, which is absolutely ridiculous. And so, you know, I think that there are things that we need as, as both parties need to say, okay, enough of the, you know, fighting on the nitty gritty stuff, but we need to come together and actually agree on some things to get some stuff moving, to say to people, we in Congress are actually working together. And that, that's one thing that I have, right? I mean, Again, the spending, I don't like any spending. I don't, I don't, I don't want to see rich people not pay taxes. I would, I prefer having a tax smorgasbord. Tell me, hey, what do you want to pay taxes on? I want to pay taxes on education. I want to pay taxes on infrastructure. And I want to pay taxes on healthcare. Those are to me really important things that I think are, are necessary in everyday life and and you know, keeping our nation safe, right? But I don't like the I don't like the wastefulness. I also do have a problem on the climate part because. I'll tell you, you know, when you watch William Shatner, really sweet, not picking on William Shatner, but, you know, when Bezos and Musk and Branson are shooting their rockets up and everyone is applauding and everyone in California is driving a G-Wagon, which I'm pretty sure is not electric. And, you know, those guys are blasting up through the ozone and the atmosphere. Where Where's all of the talk about how bad this is for the climate and maybe make all of those people pay more 
than, you know, the, the person who's like building up a business and they have a hundred people and they make a few million dollars a year. And that person is getting penalized. Whereas you've got these guys that are all roaming around and listen for anyone who hasn't been out in California, Beverly Hills is just filled. Like you would think it was filled with Teslas. It's filled with G wagons and Porsches. So I will say this. I would love Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk to pay more in taxes, which is why we should repeal the Trump tax cuts. And they would pay more in taxes. So they should pay uh, much I, more. And they, they, and they pay should much. pay for the climate, for the issues of the climate. Paying, that shouldn't should be the everyday paying. person. I, I, Well, I think it's all of our climate, but that's, that's a whole other issue. If we do the investments in Build Back Better, we will be to 100%, 100% green renewable energy by 2030 or 2040. Which will say which will huge strides forward. I also do think the commercialization of space is a good thing. I don't want to get into that whole conversation because the government doesn't. We, you know, mothballed our shuttle program. So many, so much science is done around what's going on in space. We may need to be moving to parts of space at some point. Your grandchildren or, or your great grandchildren, and I think that's important. And it's important that the commercial enterprises engage in it. But I want to go back to the tax program for a second. That. The veil of ignorance is the most important part of our tax system, which is, of course, the idea that you have no station in life, you're just born or you're just about to be born and you design a tax plan. Because at the moment you're born, your life impacts what you think the tax plan probably should be because you're either born into comfort or you're not or you're in a working family and then you're influenced by that. You might then become a doctor and or you might become a garbage collector. If you then are allowed to pick what you want to be taxed for and invest in, it, frankly, bankrupts the entire nation. And so I really feel like it's, I get the concept. And that's why I think having, I know Boston has this now, and I'm going to say it wrong, but community-based budgeting or something, there's a certain section of the budget, that, and which is getting in the direction that I think you're, you're talking about. But for me, I would love a government that, to your point on legislating, on getting things done, that, and on how we spend our dollars. We have not, and you've heard me yell about this before, we have not passed a budget through regular order in the United States Congress since 1997. 1997, a regular order is 12 or 13 appropriations bills get debate introduced, debated in committee, debated on the floor and passed, 12 or 13 authorization bills, which have to go along with them, same thing. And then they come together as a budget. But throughout that entire process, we've had conversations about how we're going to spend money in the health and labor departments, how we're going to, all those things. Because by the way, just like in your house, in my house, everybody listening's house, budgeting is prioritizing. How you spend your dollars matters. It says who you are as a nation, as a person. And the Congress of both parties for the last 24 years have basically said, our number one job, which is to plan a budget for the entire country, um, isn't that important. So we're going to pass continuing resolutions, omnibus bills. And the omnibus bills, by the way, of just like Build Back Better, are just a smorgasbord of things. But that's how Congress acts now. And I think what we need to do, both parties have to push our members of Congress to regular order, start actually debating in public the minutia of these bills so we actually know how our dollars are getting spent. Because you know, you nor I want this country to do anything other than succeed. We just have different definitions of how we're gonna get there. But if our members of Congress don't actually do any of this thing in the bright light of day, we're all losing out. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, and I think that's where, right, that's how you and I ended up becoming 
(laughs) friends at the beginning was, you know, we are coming at it from two different directions. We want the country to be in a better place. How do we get there? And, you know, at the end of the day, and I think you and I both work for the same sorts of people. We want good, solid people with great ideas who are going to be effective in 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 legislating or in managing as governors and and so how do we get there so let's get back on track to the election because i want to i want to do new jersey sure because this is near and dear to my heart as a as a a well no 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 no, no. listen i grew up in new york jersey was a dump right right? sorry for anyone my friends in new jersey i'm sorry i just said that but (laughs) (laughs) they're they're actually going to text me (laughs) <laughs> they chose to live there. They grew up in Brooklyn. They moved to my husband, moved went, to, to my husband went to college in Jersey, so he's a big fan. <laughs> but as a New Yorker, New Jersey has a as a former New Yorker, New Jersey has a, a special place in my heart. I found it fascinating that the election was so close, which which even more so than Virginia, right? Because Yunkin got really stole a lot of air, but Murphy in New Jersey brought in so many big players to help out in his election because he, I mean, it's New Jersey. So, right. He was able to get a lot more, a lot more steam, but it was really, I felt like the race was overshadowed by Virginia and, and then the election results are, you know, what point? Yeah, it was like zero three. I mean, there it's it was like, like a, less than a point apart. Yeah, it was, I, so it I will say so I've known close. Phil for a long time. Phil's from Massachusetts originally. I've known him a long time, Phil Murphy, and I was I was embarrassed because election night I thought they were going to call the election in Jersey as I had followed it not at all. I thought they were going to call it at like eight ten, and then I saw that it was, it was very tight. This to me was a lot like when John Ossoff first ran for Congress. And there was another race, there's another special the same day in North Carolina for Mark Meadows' seat. And that guy had a much, Mark Meadows had been like the only person to Republican in that seat in decades. So we had a real shot of winning that one. And instead, we all followed the shiny object, which was John Ossoff, who was running for a seat in Georgia that had been held by Newt Gingrich not that long before. Like it wasn't really an obviously Democratic swing district. But we spent tens of millions of dollars in John Ossoff, and the other guy lost by like a half a point and didn't get to Congress. But to me, I'm glad you brought that up because it is a it's a telling thing for for frankly our attention. For apparently during off years, we only have attention span from one election, and it was Virginia this time. And I think we missed the mark entirely. And I will say it is, I will use the one Democratic talking point that everybody uses, which is you know, no Democratic governor has been reelected in 40 years in, in New Jersey. So the fact that he was is a great accomplishment. <laughs> I, I think I got it out, you, so you guys, you guys all need to have that one talking point, by the way. <laughs> I, I said that and it's out now. But I thought it, it was a shame on the Democratic Party activists, donors, everybody else who didn't see that they, that he was at risk. And, and frankly, I guess a little bit shame on the DGA and him for not ringing a panic bell a little bit earlier. Yeah, I, he won. I, He did. Listen, a win is a win, right? Like we said in Virginia, a win is a win. You win by one. It doesn't matter. But I think it it is intriguing because if listen, I mean, again, like we we can Monday morning quarterback this all that we want. Right. But at the end of the day, when you look at history, 
history suggests that the party in power loses in the midterms. That is just that is factual. Yeah. That is what right. we've seen. That's what we that's know. What history shows us. That's that's what you know. Democrats have to be concerned about is that come midterms, if New Jersey was so close and mm-hmm. Virginia that was blue is now not. Then when you look at Colorado, when you look at New Hampshire, when you look at Arizona, you start to think to yourself, you know, this might put us in an interesting situation, not just in the House, but now it puts the Senate in play. Right. And so I think it's a it's really interesting to watch. And none of us have crystal balls. And like you and I know, and and how many times have we said this? Right. Polls are polls. Polls mean nothing. The only poll that means anything is Election Day. That's that's our one our one favorite talking point. Right. That we all have. (laughs) Just note to everyone. (laughs) This is is what we always say. And then the other thing is a year in politics is like a lifetime. Right. So so anything could happen. We don't know what that is. But history does suggest that it, the House at least will flip and there's not a very hefty majority that Nancy Pelosi has. So do you think that the Democrats, that's not fair. Do you think that, okay. do, you, do you think that Pelosi is going to stop giving, and again, this might not be a fair question and you could punt sure. this and, and just talk about fair. how terrible Republicans are if you want, because, and then I'll just fix that one. But do you think that Pelosi is going to be able to squash the squad and and be able to finally put Ilhan Omar. I mean, what happened, if you see what happened in, in Minnesota and Minneapolis with the referendum on the police, I think that was really telling as well. So do you think that Pelosi is going to be able to control now and be able to take back the reins for the Democrats in the House and say, hey, listen, you guys had your shot at messaging. You screwed up. And I've been here longer. And I told you from the very beginning, this is what we need to do. I gave you your chance. This is where we are now. Let's you know start playing in my sandbox. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that she has the will to do that, and she's going to be able to do that? Again, so there's one certainty in American politics, and that is no one truly controls a caucus in Washington D.C. better than Nancy Pelosi does. And you rightly describe what she has done, which is first of all, she's not going to squash anyone's voice. She believes in everybody having a voice in the caucus, but when things need to get done. She is going to, which she's, I know, working on. And I was with Jim McGovern earlier last week, and I know he's working on. So getting enough votes to get this caucus to win, because the one thing that she can give away to the caucus and that those members of Congress she just alluded to understand is they all have to get reelected. Now, the problem with the with the far right and the far left in both of our caucuses are they're from, and we all complain, well, at least on our side, we complain about gerrymandering, but they're both in districts that they're not going to lose from. <laughs> so there's not a huge incentive for them other than being in the majority, which in the House and the Senate have a huge uh, have a huge impact. So I do think that we are at the phase of Build Back Better negotiations where we are getting stuff done. This is about, you know, this is about resolution and results. And so when that is done, folks are going to be able to take that entire bill and campaign for re-election and go around and talk about the great work that got done and claim their version of credit for it. And also the things that didn't get done, they still get a chance to campaign on. They still get a chance to talk about the issues that weren't included uh, in Build Back Better or, or won't be that they wanted to, the other you know trillion and a half dollars that they still uh, want to invest, the free uh, community college, et cetera, that likely won't make it in. So I think you're going to see a much different Democratic caucus after Build Back Better passes. And I think 22 is actually, uh, we may 
we may uh, pleasantly surprise you when it comes to election day. Uh, uh, because I do think people want, the voters don't care. In the end, you know, you know this as well as I do. It's just like Massachusetts, 57% of the state is, is independent. People want results. Right. They, they don't necessarily care if it comes to the D or an R after the name. They want results. They want results for them. They want results for their family. There was a good, someone we both know just alluded the other day to the tax fights we used to have in Massachusetts and Barbara Anderson uh, the late, uh, great Barbara Anderson, who was on the opposite side of the issue than I am. But when the Democrats would get into battles about increasing taxes and, and doing all these different things, we would talk in the billion dollar time frame, you know, those those dollar amounts. And, and Barbara would take it down to barbershop level. Like, what is it going to cost you to get shampoo for your, your for the people? And that's what, to the extent we have a messaging problem in the Democratic parties that we've gotten away from that mm. is really bringing the, the, the issues to light in a real way to people at their kitchen table and reminding folks that the work that, that we are doing both in Washington and the state houses across the country really matters and has a direct impact on their lives. Instead of talking about trillions of dollars, which by the way, a trillion dollars is $1,000 billion. I mean, let's like, it's just a <laughs> Oh yeah, no, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's, it's like, it's about the money. Oh, yeah. 1, 000, so you I'm, I'm glad you that say, you, like, we agree on invest, that. <laughs> right. You're invest a trillion dollars. It's like, you got to break that down to this is what it means for Joe and Jill at their house. Not Joe and Jill Biden, but Joe, you know, <laughs> the, the that, ex- that example. It just, it just uh, flowed uh, out. Uh, yeah. For like, for, you know, the, for Kevin and Janice Kerrigan, my parents got rest their souls, but like what it would have, the impact it would have had on their household. That's, we've got to bring it down right. to take it out of the trillions and bring it down to the kitchen table. So the, so we, we can agree on a couple of things, which is, you know, premise of, of political contessa. Sometimes, you know, I'm going to go hard and disagree on things. And other times I want to agree to disagree because it's important to have good political discourse. Right. And yes. and that civil discourse is really good for all of us. One, Republicans hate gerrymandering, too, especially in states like Massachusetts. <laughs> I hate it. It's terrible in New England. It's terrible. It doesn't it doesn't well, look it was. It was Governor Gary who created it. <laughs> so, so we don't like it either. So I will agree with you on that. A trillion dollars is a lot of money. I agree with you on that. And and I also agree on, you know, the the Republican Party, what we what we needed to do was have and Reince Priebus, who's who's a good friend of mine and we've known for years from RNC days when we were both party chair, was he said the other night, Glenn Youngkin was a happier warrior with a happy spirit. And I think that, you know, that's something we can also agree on, that candidates that have that good perspective, regardless of who they are and what letters after their name, that resonates when you're able to talk to people about those kitchen table issues and when you're mm-hmm. able to yeah. boil it down to what's affecting them. And what we see today is rising prices at the gas pump. You know, we have a supply chain issue and, mm-hmm. and you know, we could battle about how it, how it happened and where it came from and COVID and all that stuff. But, but at the end of the day, when voters go to vote, they think about what's affecting them every single day. And that's what you saw happen in New Jersey and in Virginia for right now in 2021. Again, 2022 is a long time off. And we, you and I are going to have to do this much more because much more. this this is so fun. I love doing it. I hope that you enjoyed being enjoyed on it. Political was, Contessa. And I hope you I enjoy did. listening to it because I think this is super important discussion for anyone who's in the center or or to the right or to the left, right? To be able to hear our perspectives on this and to be able to flush out, I mean, 
you know, of course I, I was elated on, on Tuesday on, you know, election night and I went to sleep and I was so happy and I couldn't, I was glued to the TV. I couldn't stop. And I woke up so happy, you know, the morning after, but but as you're you're making me blush, my goodness, as a Republican in Massachusetts, you know, I wake up a lot of times on election day, a little sad. I was very sad, very, very sad for Boston on election day. Please don't comment on that. I was very, very sad for Boston on election day. And so, you know, and by the way, can I just make one comment? This is going to be my last comment. And then I have one comment to make too before you go. Okay. And and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to let you make your comment. Then we can, we can settle up, but I will say Democrats across the country are using the Boston's mayor, the Boston mayor's race as a win. I mean, can, can you just let someone know, like, seriously, when I hear on TV, a a Democrat, we, we Democrats (laughs) won in Boston. I'm like, no. Shit. Yeah. Seriously? Like yeah, if a Republican a won in Boston, yeah. <laughs> that would yeah. be amazing. Yeah. So yeah. so for Democrats across the country, just so you know, if you decide to listen and if you're a Republican, please tell your Democratic friend this. Boston will always be in control of a Democrat. The difference between this race was a progressive Democrat and a uber progressive Democrat. That was the difference in the race. There was no Republican in it. There was never a Republican. And by the way, it was always going to be a woman as well. With that, right. and that issue color. and a woman of color. Woman with of that, color. Those yeah. those yeah. issues were all settled. So please don't use those yeah. as wins. They aren't wins. Yeah. No, but look, hey, we were desperate for a win until <laughs> right. the next day when Phil won. So people are going to cling to that. So my only my one my one last point, and I think why Glenn Young can gets uh, an attaboy for this one thing that he did. I think the thing that helped him win the election most above all other of his lies and crazy tactics was the smartest thing he ever did. Do you know what it was? The vest? Nope. Don't have Donald Trump come to the state of Virginia. Right. If, if Donald Trump had campaigned in person with Glenn Youngkin, I think there's a better than average chance that Terry McAuliffe, and that would have scared enough people to get out and he could have probably eked out that couple of points. You know, I don't. It was the smartest thing he did. Okay. And I, honestly, when I saw the president, the vice president, everybody else going to Terry's rescue. That, of course, is the panic sign that, you know, you're going to lose. And I made this case when Martha was running against Scott Brown in 2010, like, Make this about the people of Massachusetts. Make that about the people of Virginia. And he did that. But ha- I, ha- I know there were people telling him they had that he should have brought Trump. The best decision he made was not allowing Donald Trump in the state of Virginia because he could have possibly and probably would have lost. Yeah, him. no, I don't. I totally don't. It says a lot about the former president. Look, I, I will. Well, I mean, he, you know, McAuliffe <laughs> didn't have Biden. You're such a big McAuliffe didn't have Biden either, right? He didn't he have Obama and not uh, Biden? Biden did come. Oh, at did the Biden very did. end. But it was yeah. it was all about Obama at first. So, you know, one one thing. So so we 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 agree. We agree on the Trump issue. And I'll say I love Youngkin. I'm really happy. I think, you know, he's young. He's smart. He's hardworking. He found issues that appeal to people. I'm really excited to see how he governs Virginia. I really don't want to hear people say, oh, he'd be great in 2022 because or 2024, because I think they are. And I've heard that, right? But I'd like to see him govern Virginia and be a really good governor and be seasoned. And I think that we we have enough, we've had enough people who didn't have enough experience governing or legislating before becoming president. And we need to have that more of that. But yeah. it's great to see the benches being built by, you know, for me, by people like him and Jack Ciccarelli. And so that's awesome. 
And I do. I think that the fact that he didn't he didn't run away from Trump and he didn't run toward Trump, he ran his own campaign. And that's what I think was really superior about his race was that he really ran his own race and he he intuitively knew what he needed. And so, you know, again, for you and me in this world where we're always, you know, talking to candidates and advising people and strategizing, there are certain ways that you who have run for office and me who have run for office, both of us have been political operatives all this time, right? Things that we tell people and we we automatically know when we see a candidate that they're going to be a lousy candidate or they have a potential to knock it out of the park. And so think that it, no matter what we, you know, you look at these races and say, you look at the character, you look at their campaigns, you look at, you know, the the groundswell of support and, and hey, voter turnout, right? Like if, if you don't go vote, you have nothing to say at the end of the day. You have to go that vote, is true. right? So. That is true, which is why you should tell the Republicans in the Senate to pass the voting rights act. Oh my God, you're killing me. All right, on that note. I said I had my last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Good, good try there. It's my show. I get to close it out. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you, Steve Kerrigan. I am so happy that you are here with me on Political Contessa. It has been so wonderful. And again, we are going to have to do this more frequently over the next year of the 2022 elections. And hopefully at November of 2022, I get to harass you a little bit more when the House and Senate are in Republican control. But See, I get to leave it like that. <laughs> so it's your show. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Steve. And thank you for thank listening you. to Political Contessa. You can find me at politicalcontessa.com. Thanks so much for listening to Political Contessa. For all the ways to listen and to get the inside scoop on what's happening in center-right politics for women like us, head over to politicalcontessa.com. Mm-hmm.